0: Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve our nation's cultural divisions by talking about cicadas. Uh, This is episode four. We will be talking about the great Greek historian Thucydides. Here from Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Charles Bobinger. With me on the line, as always, from Istanbul is my co-host, David Wheel. David, how is it going?
1: Hey, Charles, doing great. Great to talk with you.
0: Excellent, excellent. Uh, this week we have – I am very excited for this because this week we have um, a just a wonderful topic to delve into that we know in advance we are not going to get very far in in terms of the overall substance that could be discussed for it, but this is really one of those uh, subjects where the marginal benefit of even just a little discussion for people who are less familiar with it can be huge, I think, um, and uh, yeah – Uh, This week, uh, do you have anything in the news you want to talk about before we get
1: started? Um, No, I think it kind of, obviously there's so much to talk about. um, We can maybe bring it up in the context of the the main content that we're uh, focusing on. Yeah, there wasn't
0: a single big piece of news that we felt necessary to discuss at the start of this episode. Um, I mean, as always, we've just been having lots of additional bizarre revelations in the Trump-Russia saga, additional... Bizarre developments in the Obamacare repeal saga, it's just sort of emotionally draining to deal with any of that stuff, just to read it, Um, and I don't know that we have much of substance to add extemporaneously about it that isn't in the context of something else. So, uh, let's get to Thucydides. Uh, For those of you who are not aware, the title of this podcast, Fear, Honor, and Interest, comes from Thucydides' classic work of Greek history, which we call the Peloponnesian War. I don't believe it actually had a title for him. Um, He referred to fear, honor, and interest as the three things that cause war. And uh, we put that in as the title because it was available, and it uh, had at least a little bit to do with the sort of current affairs, international relations that we wanted to discuss. Um, To give just a very brief bit of background here, Thucydides was a Greek general during the Peloponnesian War, which occurred uh, in the in the uh, 5th century B.C. between Athens and Sparta. And uh, at the start of the war, he decided to, to write down a history of what was happening because he could tell that this was going to be a momentous event and he wanted a record and um, he wanted to copy down his thoughts. And uh, he died before finishing the work, um, but he gets... Reasonably far into it, enough so that the edition I'm holding in my hands right now is a pure wall of text with no illustrations, and it is 550 pages long, with no annotations, illustrations, or anything else. It is just a gigantic wall of text, which can make it um, a little intimidating for first-time readers. I know I was a little intimidated when I first picked it up because I was using the edition that I'm holding, which is which I've had for many years, which is an unannotated version. Um, which it can get very confusing when you're stumbling through that much uh, involving history of places you might not be that familiar with. Um, David, did you, did you first read it around the time that I did, or had you been familiar with it before then?
1: Um, I, you know, I can't. I was such a fanatic about Greek history and um, Greek mythology when I was younger. I'm not sure exactly when I first uh, came upon Thucydides as a um, Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War um, as a concept, but I think that I only started studying the Peloponnesian War and reading Thucydides in college, um, and that would have been in the context of you know courses with lots of supplementary information, oh, yes. you know, not not as uh, better presented. Uh, text than simply the bare bones original uh text that you were describing but um you know i think the the for me the key phrase that uh thucydides conjures is not you know so the the art the title is is good and that's the reason we're going to talk about Thucydides today it's like what is why is this important but you know early on he's describing why he's setting pen to uh, to paper, and he says that his goal is not to. And I'm not gonna. This is not a direct quote, but it's not to uh, write a prize essay that will meet the standards of a momentary trend. That's sort of a loose translation, a paraphrase, but but as a possession for all time and you know that obviously being the type of people that we are um, (laughs) you know that's the kind of phrase that leaps off the page and uh, there's just something wonderful about a text that was written by someone born you know 2,500 years ago um, that isn't a religious document it isn't something that people worship it's just a book about the perspective of a man who witnessed the events witnessed and participated in the events uh going on around him that was so brilliant in certain ways um that you know generation after generation of people have looked at and looked at it and said he lives up to what he set out to do he wrote something that um, you know, it doesn't just fit what some you know trend demanded. It you know wasn't it wasn't just like the latest piece of news based on anonymous sources about <laughs> <laughs> what was going on in the halls of power. It was something that was uh, such a great incisive document, uh, capturing essential truths or what seemed to be essential truths of human nature that it speaks to us even after all this time.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, and it does, it's great. Um, so my, for those listening, uh, I'm assuming you first read it then in directed studies, which was a particular class at yeah, Yale that yeah. covered the classics. I didn't get to it until a seminar that we both took junior year called studies in grand strategy, um, which, I mean, this is sort of one of the foundational texts of, so much of international relations and thought that um this was we we read this for context for people that on how i did not understand this as much when i first read it our second week of class we just had this as an assignment just read this book and then we came in to discuss it and so the edition that i had was this 550 page wall of text with no annotations um and that can make it a little daunting um, it reminded me to a certain extent in retrospect of how when I was young and I found a book of complete works of Shakespeare in our basement, and I thought, oh well, Shakespeare is something smart people read. So I'm going to read Shakespeare, and this is gonna be great. And I open it up, and of course the first play is Henry the Sixth Part One, which is not really even Shakespeare devotees don't particularly care for Henry the Sixth Part One. Henry the Sixth Part Two has <laughs> got its moments. That's where the First thing we do, let's call all the lawyers line comes from. And I think yeah. Henry the VI Part Three is a legitimately decent play. But Henry the VI Part I, I slogged through it. It had no annotations. was just a wall of text. I didn't understand anything that was happening. It made me not like Shakespeare. And then a few years later, um, after seeing uh, some Shakespeare on stage and getting a book that had annotations for the particular play, which was The Tempest that I had seen, I appreciated it and I understood it. And I think uh, for all of you listening, Thucydides is kind of like that. Um, I would love all of you to pick up and read this book if you haven't, Um, but if you do, I would uh, ask that you be wary of the fact that um, it might not be that interesting on the first read, but there's a lot of Shakespeare as well that is not that interesting on the first read. It's when you go back and keep reading it and you understand what's going on that it becomes more and more valuable. Um, It's sort of like the best movies are the ones where you can watch it again and again and see things you didn't see before, appreciate things you didn't appreciate before. I wasn't that wowed by Citizen Kane when I first saw it but as a child, but then I went back, listened to the director's commentary on it, watched it again and again. Wow, this is really a great movie. I mean, everybody yeah. says that it is, but it's one of those things where you really have to look at the totality of the thing and not view it as a single reading or a single viewing as being the experience, um, if you want to get everything out of it. Um so uh, that's the, the brief background for um, what this work is. Uh, it's kind of, um, would you say it's fair to say that it is sort of a reaction, its style is a reaction against what Herodotus
1: did? David? Right, that was, yeah, that, that's definitely one of the um, main points uh, to take away from it. If You know, just like cocktail, the sort of mythical cocktail conversation. Yeah basic uh line is that you have sort of the birth of history nominally in the western context through herodotus who is traveling around the world the known world of his day um talking to people listening to their stories about why things are the way they are and just recording all these stories and he's not really um he's not really subjecting the information he is gathering to any kind of method. Um, He's just going and talking to people and saying like, Oh, that sounds interesting. Or, you know, well, these people say this, but these other people say that and kind of leaving it at that. And uh, so he's called the father of history, but also the father of lies because he just records all the stuff that isn't true. Whereas Thucydides, and this is the, You know, why is this a gift for all time? It's a gift for all time, or a a possession for all time, because he applies a method, and he weighs things that he hears against each other and against facts that he knows to be true. And with the light of all this information, he makes conclusions, and he doesn't hide any of that process from, uh, from the reader. And so, you know, there's one extent to which and again, like just the kind of people we are, um, really loving history, there's value in the way that um, he makes conclusions, he draws conclusions and lessons about these particular episodes. But there's also just something exciting and almost magical about going back so far in time to feel like you are talking to a really smart guy. Yeah. you know who who didn't speak like were, we have no common language and um he's been dead for you know for 2500 years but his intelligence just shines through the chain of transition of transmission you know that has resulted in his uh, text being available in you know annotated illustrated English in the 21st century
0: yeah yeah um, the the um In in terms of we were talking just as I was mentioning editions, there is a the landmark edition of Thucydides is sort of the gold standard for that because it's got so many annotations and illustrations that it makes it uh, much more accessible. I had I I bought the non annotated normal version for our grand strategy class, and then the next year in senior year, I took uh, a class on Greek history where we use the landmark edition of Thucydides like, wow, this is so much easier and better (laughs) to understand when you've got illustrations and annotations and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you, by the way, so um, part of why I really wanted to talk about this now, um, aside from the fact that explaining the title of our podcast, and this is a foundational text of international relations, but something that prompted me to want to talk about this sooner was that I was at a party with some friends and I um, met a friend of a friend and mentioned that we'd started doing this podcast where the joke tagline was a show where two white, straight white guys who went to Yale solve our nation's cultural divisions by talking about Thucydides. And the person's response was Thucydides. That's that thing that Bannon and his people read, right? <laughs> yeah. um, which was oh, a very disheartening thing to hear because uh, some of you may have heard that Steve Bannon and Michael Anton, um, just people in the sort of the Bannon circle – uh, are apparently uh, fervent fans of Thucydides. And this has really been something that people have been talking about this summer. And it's it was surprising to me a little bit when I first heard about it, a little bit less when I heard more context to it. Um, because this is, as I said, a, a very beloved text in international relations circles. It's huge in military circles. I mean, this is... I think it was um, uh, that uh, Secretary Mattis uh, apparently is able to just quote giant chunks of this in any discussion and bring it up. Um and uh a lot of you who are listening who might not be familiar with any of the names involved of Peloponnesian War with Thucydides, you probably were uh forced to read two sections of this book in history class in grade school or high school. Um this is the class, if you remember Pericles' funeral oration, that comes from here. And um uh, uh, the Melian dialogue where Athens decides to just dis- destroy this uh, smaller city state and says that the strong do what they can, the weak suffer what they must is sort of a, a statement of real politic. Um, and uh, you probably are familiar with those segments, um, but seriously reading this book and discussing a lot of these specific details from it is something that's long been popular um, amongst people who want to sound learned like us. Um, and uh, learning that Bannon and his people were interested in it was strange. I certainly cannot imagine Trump reading this book. He, he can't <laughs> even read a couple-page uh, briefings that don't involve. I mean, we've heard this thing where they have to insert his name into into briefings so that he'll keep reading.
1: I can't yeah. imagine
0: he would read Thucydides, especially an unannotated version. Well, yeah, they figures.
1: also they also said uh, you know they he likes maps, so maybe he yeah. could get through the, the landmark. The <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: landmark one goes up to a thousand pages, though, doesn't it? I it's been a while there, since I've used it. There
1: are a them. lot of maps, though.
0: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so one of the reasons I wanted to bring this one up quickly is to dispel uh, some of the idea that this is like a Bannon's people type book. Um, this is this is really just more a book for, for people who are international relations realists or uh, care about certain parts of military strategy because there is a lot in this text. Part of what makes it so great is that throughout it, you can see so many different situations arise. And part of the reason that that can happen is because you've got all of these Greek city-states that are that are small by modern standards, but because there are so many of them, there are so many situations that arise. There are so many relations between states, so many confederations of different states and how they relate to each other. And I think that that just, as a result, gives you... Um, a gigantic canvas on which Thucydides paints a variety of ideas.
1: Right. And just a huge variety in the interplay of different um, approaches to internal and external politics. And so, you know, the Melian dialogue, you know, the way that Thucydides presents it makes it... Somewhat clear that Thucydides is more or less a what we would call a realist, you know, an an IR realist. Um, But you hear idealistic uh, exhortations. You know, you you see that he is recording like these are the major fault lines and the ways that people organize, Um, and he has his own bias and you know, we'll, we'll get into that yeah. as we talk about the the problems with the um the type of reading that the uh, Bannonites seem to have of Thucydides based on these reports um you know Thucydides definitely has his own biases his own um perspective that you know he doesn't necessarily grapple with um and reveal in the way that he would be expected to if he were a you know like a modern um political scientist, but he nevertheless uh, as you say, he's dealing with such a rich and uh various field that he um, almost in spite of himself presents an enormous uh, uh, sort of an enormous share or percentage of the spectrum of human uh over like possible human political positions and relationships
0: yeah and i think his writing style also certainly you know in opposition again to herodotus it doesn't really glorify a lot of what's happening a lot of it sometimes the text can seem a little dry and the dryness of it when he describes some of these catastrophic military events can make it seem i don't know it it's sort of that much more realist in the sense that it's not interested in just it's not interested in some of herodotus's things about look how fantastic all of this was and how they've been glorified
1: for all time. Yeah, well, it's very non, it's very unsentimental. And um, that, again, is a, you know, sentimentality changes, like the way that sentimentality is expressed changes so significantly as a result of, um, I mean, it might be sort of rude, I mean, basically just fads there are there are certain fads and trends about what we express sen- sentimentality over that mm-hmm. the way that he strips so much of that out and simply reports what he understands to be facts is what brings the text to life in yeah. such a tremendous way you know he's not he's not uh mawkish or or sentimental when he describes. The um, you know the Athenian prisoners being worked to death uh, in the mines of Syracuse. He's just he just describes it, and it's a horror. It's a horror. It's a horrible crime against humanity. You know that speaks for itself. But the fact that he doesn't use words like that uh, prevents it from being dated. Yeah. You know. Whereas if you read something about, um, you know, if you read like reports of the, I mean, you know, this gets to my own issue to some extent. If you read stuff about um you know the plight of the christians of the middle east in uh, in the world war 1 period and after um the the intense focus on you know the fact that they're christian the fact that the audience is assumed to be christian uh the fact that the perpetrators and the um oppressors of these poor victims are you know are the other they're brown muslims you know that type of text uh Will never have. I mean, it has value as a historical document, but it has no uh, claim to speak for any kind of universal experience of human nature because it is so particular. It's so wrapped up in the, again, the the ways of expressing, you know, sentimentality and uh, sort of overwrought mor- morality. You know, tied to its time. Yeah. And Thucydides is. If, uh, again it's just a remarkable expression of the value of the piece uh you know his work that he strips that out and is disciplined in his approach in a, in a really remarkable way
0: yeah i mean he definitely has his, his he's from athens he definitely has an athenian viewpoint and definitely seems to prefer certain elements of the athenian way of life but when you're reading the book he does a pretty good job of describing things in such a way that it doesn't feel like this is a story where athens is the good guys and sparta is the bad guys
1: yeah um too. yeah
0: so um to we don't want to we can't go too in depth on just talking about what happens in the book because it's long and um you could probably find that plenty of other places with cliff notes but
1: and we don't really want to do like a book report no
0: here. definitely not um For those who are less familiar with what happened in the Peloponnesian War and why people talk about it a lot, um, to start with a historical moment here that people may understand from popular culture, um, you you have this war where there's all of these Greek city-states that are independent, and then the Persian Empire starts encroaching, and this is where the movie 300 comes in where they show part of the war against persia they show a particular battle there's actually i was actually surprised when i saw 300 by how accurate some of it was i mean obviously (laughs) as a movie it's a stylized graphic novel but um but they really did explain things that spartans really did do they really did have this by modern senses it would seem crazy i mean even back then it seemed a little crazy to everybody who wasn't sparta um society that trained people just to be great warriors And um, although, uh, you know, part of what's left off in things like 300 that is, I think, very relevant to understand the mindset of Sparta and uh, other societies that have some similarities to it and people who glorify Sparta, which is something that the Bannonites apparently do. They're apparently taking the Sparta side, the military might is great, let's be like Sparta side, um, which in a bit we'll get you to, to explain why that's a little questionable given Spartan society. Um, in any event, you have this great war and uh, the Greek city States sort of form alliances to deal with the Persians. And eventually you have a situation where Athens, um, which is one of the, lar- I think it was the largest by a substantial margin by that point. I don't know if that had been the case yet, but Athens was you know, wealthy and had a lot of ships and athens created this delian league where these other city states would be in a mutual defense pact with athens but eventually athens said okay instead of you participating militarily why don't you just pay us money so that we can build the ships and we'll take care of a lot of this defense um which has drawn a lot of comparisons i mean throughout the cold war the big comparison was this is like NATO. You've got this this NATO that Athens is Athens is sort of the America of where it's doing the bulk of the work, but it's in this alliance. And then you've got Sparta, which has its own Peloponnesian League, which doesn't really have that much in common with the Soviet Union um, really at all, except that Sparta was arguably the first totalitarian state that we know of. Um, but yeah. uh, but anyway. So Athens – Sparta is this established power. Athens starts rising as a power, and um, Graham Allison has a book recently that's talking about the Thucydides trap, the idea that what's behind Thucydides – and classical scholars will dispute that this is what Thucydides is about at all. Um, It's really sort of based on one line in the text. Um, This idea that Athens is a rising power and that a rising power is going to come into conflict with an established power – and the argument that Graham Allison makes is that this is what's going to happen to the U.S. and China. China is a, ri- a rising power. The U.S. is the established power and rising powers always come into conflict, which is, again, based off of really one sentence in Thucydides that doesn't – the rest of the text doesn't back that up because there are a lot of opportunities where they could have avoided the war. But right. there is a perspective people get out of it that says that when you're a rising power, you will come into conflict with an established power and this will lead to war. Thucydides right. really back that notion up. and. Um, the specifics of how the war starts in this book are—they're very—I mean—they're very specific to this time and place. It has to do with a Spartan ally that leaves Spartans, Sparta's league, and then joins with Athens, and then leaves Athens' league, and then Athens—you um, know—decides uh, to uh, to ban uh, its alliance members from dealing with that city-state, and then this angers Sparta beca- because it. it 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 gets into very specific things as to why this would be the cause of the war, but um, what, it, what it reminds me of, and I think in the sense of when all you have is a hammer, all you see are nails. Um, you know, my interest when I was going back to grade school, the war that sort of piqued my interest was World War One, and that does make I think the American mindset wants to view every potential war as being World War Two, which is to say. A war of good versus evil that is unavoidable and if you try to stay out of it you'll be dragged in and it'll be catastrophic. Or Vietnam, which is that every war is completely avoidable and just gonna be a giant quagmire and waste of resources and so forth. Resource
1: based on a lie.
0: Yeah. And and I think that in reality, a lot more wars than we assume are similar to World War One, which is that they largely happen because the parties involved just kinda want to go to war. I mean, you can you can argue at the margins about various things and what happens, but I mean, fundamentally part of my reading of it is people didn't want to avoid World War One all that much. I mean, individual members did, individual parties did, but you've got a war that basically people are overly optimistic about how they're going to perform in the war, and they start this war, and then once they get into the war, they can't get out of it, and it just keeps draining and draining and draining them. Um and I, I think that there are a lot of wars a lot more wars than than people often acknowledge are like that, where people rush in a little too quickly thinking it's going to be easy, then it's not easy, and then they just can't get out of it.
1: Um Right, and they keep you know. uh digging themselves deeper into right. the hole that they stumbled into, even as their realization dawns of what a catastrophe it's all become. They uh convince themselves that a little bit more effort you know one big one more big push is all it'll take uh before before all the investment is redeemed you know right. all the all the blood lost all the um wealth destroyed you know uh, there's this again it's it's human nature that um you know we're uh we're averse to loss so you might say well then no one would ever have a war because there's so much potential loss we're also very good at um, magical thinking, yes. you know just assuming that the the downsides are not as as high as they are, but once we are aware of what we 've lost, we then become you know uh, fixated on those sunk costs and want to um, want to see them paid it back right. somehow yeah and,
0: and it 's difficult because you don't when you, lo- when you lose lives, you lose soldiers lives, which we value a lot it 's what we a lot of people say they value a lot. Um, it's calling that a sunk cost sounds horrific. You're saying that it's one thing to say we spent a bunch of money and it it didn't work out. It's a sunk cost. We ought to back out because additional investment doesn't make sense. It's so much harder emotionally to do that with war because you don't want people – saying that you don't want people to die in vain is very different from saying you don't want to have spent that money in vain. The sunk cost fallacy is a lot harder to get away from in war.
1: Right. And well and again, you know, here we are talking about these cities and like everything we've been talking about for the last, you know, 2 minutes let's say, just make it specific. There's a direct corollary yeah. somewhere in the text.
0: I mean, the expedition and to Sicily is what was going through my mind.
1: The expedition to Sicily and all the debates about how much um how many troops, how many ships, you know, how much effort, how much how many resources to allocate to that uh expedition is one aspect. Then this question of the sanctity of soldiers' lives um, is—I'm uh, forgetting now the the direct names—but there were you know the ten generals who were put on trial oh. uh, for their victory, uh, after which a storm rolled up and present, prevented the force from claiming and burying the dead that they had lost at sea. You know, the Athenian state, the people were so uh outraged at this violation of the of the sacred value of funeral rites for fallen soldiers that you know no rational argument could move them at that point. You know, so this this goes to a broader point that it's like, okay, why are we talking about the cities again? We've talked about, okay, it's the name, you know, the name of the podcast. And it's these uh reports that have been trickling out about one like you know, Senate, like even democratic senators are like, wow, look at Mattis, he can quote Thucydides. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's funny because the specific parts of, of of that that Mattis was citing that a lot of people were impressed by are things like the Melian dialogue, which are the famous parts, not the what I want to hear is when Mattis really gets into specific stuff about Alcibiades and the expedition to Sicily, which I'm sure he could do.
1: It's just yeah, uh, it's, the yeah. people
0: on the outside who are listening to it get impressed by the parts that aren't really the impressive parts.
1: Yeah. That's that's for sure. And this so why are we talking about it? We're talking about these people who have um, seemingly fetishized the, the book, and they're talking about how it really like informs their view of the world. And you now that's the Bannonites, and we're we're gonna get back to to that in a second. But you know, there's a there's a big picture issue here, which I want to definitely just lay it out, like why I find this so valuable, which is just the concept of, you know, like I mean, again, it goes back to a, a possession for all time. And that only makes sense if you can understand what it means for a group of people to possess a book or an idea for all time. It And there's this Scottish philosopher, and I'm not going to go too far into this, but Alistair MacIntyre um, has this great way of describing a tradition and the inherent tension that exists between the people who want to adhere to the tradition in a kind of fundamentalist reading and claim that like, it cannot change versus uh, people who want the tradition to grow and thrive in multiple environments. And uh, that second category is the kind of thing that you see with you know, the decision of Christians to begin preaching to Gentiles, mm-hmm. where you know the religion has to change in order to accommodate these new people. But their view was that it was strengthened. You know, the church was strengthened by expanding to, to bring in these new people. And with something like, you know, a gift for all time, a a possession for all time being just a book written by some guy that no one is claiming is, you know, religiously inspired. The question is, you know, what does it mean for generations of people to read the same book and have these episodes in their mind, you know, to apply and ask questions about the events that are um, unfolding in real time around them? And, um, you know, they're always, I think, I think one of the main points that we have to accept is that there will always be multiple interpretations of these episodes, you know, and that's kind of what you were talking about with, um, you know, all these questions, all these like sort of nitpicking that you could engage in about what these, uh, white house officials are using as their, um, you know, the way that they describe these like cases that they're bringing up from the book. Um, but I think that's actually the value of the tradition in this context is that it gives you something to argue about where the result of that argument is uh, that you ideally are able to think clear, more clearly about the trade-offs of one of the episodes that we're dealing with in the current day, because it's like, You know, is a rising China, oh, is that the Thucydides Trap? Well, which part of the Thucydides Trap? Like, if America is more like Athens because we're a maritime-free, you know, somewhat militaristic and somewhat oppressive, but also, you know, relatively uniquely democratic society, uh, how does that make us think about this question of the Thucydides Trap? That's actually, you know, to, to cling to a text and to have a tradition around a text Uh, in this way, is just fundamentally valuable, I think, um, because it provides that grist for debate and analysis. It's a
0: common vocabulary for people who study a lot of this stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, and something that I wish that more um, progressives, because this is the thing, the whole context for our conversation is like the types of people who have been, Talking about this and this, you know, the anecdote you shared about the story of the um going to the party, Mm -hmm. and they were like, Oh, yeah, that that book that you know Bannon and all those people were reading. You know, there's a there's a threat that that you know, the more that this trope is explored in the news, where like Bannon, Mattis, conservative, I mean, Bannon isn't even really. That much of a conservative, but you know, those types of people on the far right end of the political spectrum in America today, the extent to which they are the only ones who are like talking about this book, has a chance for you know staining it with a with a kind of partisan character that it that there's no reason to apply to it. Um, and to me, it's it's particularly uh, frustrating because the. Valuable shared tradition of kind of incremental improvement of society, um, which people, I think, you know, pretty broad spectrum of the political center could share a belief in and support for, um, to me is perfectly captured by the concept of the Western tradition, where you have these the great books of history that one by one, you know, improve upon the theories presented by previous scholars pass the torch down to a new generation. And again, going back to what I was saying about Alistair McIntyre, do so with an understanding that there is a, there there. There is a tradition that they're, um, that they're preserving and valuing, but that in order to keep that tradition alive, they are continually changing it and expanding it, you know, in the way that, You mentioned this in a previous episode, um, you know, when America, when the United States of America, when the Constitution was, was written and when the Declaration of Independence was written before that and when the 14th Amendment was ratified after that, you know, there were these great resounding words about human freedom and dignity that were, you know, callously, brutally, disgustingly violated, you know, all across the country. Um, But that tension, again, there's a tension between the words and the reality um, that is kind of redeemed in this, you know, tradition of incremental improvement. And so to me, you know, it's like someone could say this is a this is like the oldest, deadest white guy. You know, he's like a European who wrote this book, you know, 2,500 years ago. It's time to move on, but um, I think what's wonderful about it is that it does speak to, there's no reason it can't speak to all of us in the diversity of our experience as Americans in the 21st century.
0: Right, and something I think, you know, in terms of what you said about adding bits to it, I mean, that makes it all the more um, sort of uh, poignant that the book is unfinished, like it's literally unfinished, Yeah, right. and we all keep adding to it and finishing it ourselves, and yeah um, it's like you know uh, united states founding document we're trying to form a more perfect union we're not getting to perfection but we're always pursuing it and um, to a certain extent i mean I, I hope that that's what conversations on our show are about we know we'll never get to perfect truth or perfect understanding of anything but we're going to keep trying we're going to try we have to aspire to something and keep working in that direction even if you never quite get there yeah. Um and i think that uh thucydides Um, does a lot like that. And when you talk about him being the oldest, deadest white guy, which I like that as a phrase I'm going to write, (laughs) I'm going to, um, I think that that needs to be, I would love to do like uh, a blurb on a translation of Thucydides Thucydides, that calls him the oldest, deadest white guy. Um, But uh, an interesting part of that, which is, um, you know, David and I were discussing before we started the podcast, sort of un- an unfinished idea that's been percolating in my my head for a while, which is this observation I've had that a lot of progressive people – like a lot of conservatives will read a lot of these older foundational texts of history. And then a lot of progressives will talk about more modern philosophical things saying, oh, you know, that's an old dead white guy. That's just your Western civilizational bias. What I would like to see more of is um, people talking about um, history of places outside the West because that's fascinating too. I mean – when you when you sit down and read a book on say Chinese history, it's you know there's a lot of Chinese history there, and there are a lot of things that happen, and it's it's very fascinating. It has its own great stories and its own um, momentous things that you can study and discuss and debate. The problem is we don't have a common vocabulary for that, because if you go outside, if you're in Western civilization and you're looking outside Western civilization for books to discuss, you know I can. In Western Civilization, we talk about Western Civilization books because a lot of people have read things like Thucydides. It's a common vocabulary. If I wanted to go out and start talking about things that happen, happened in the Tang Dynasty, it's going to be a little harder. You're going to have to stop and explain what it is you're 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 dealing with. And I don't know. It's just much more complicated because you also have to explain what the imperial system was like in China. And you have to explain so many things that it's not going to be easy to have just a, a – a, straight up conversation unless you specifically sit down with a group of people and say, we're going to read this part of history. But what I would like to see is, you know, don't stop reading the old dead white guys, start reading all of the other people as well. Um, which to some extent progressives try to do, but when I see them do it, it seems to me, and I, this could just be the perspective, the narrow tunnel vision that I get from my Facebook feed or my friends that they're discussing um, writers less about history than about philosophy or about some other idea, and I would just like us to expand to a broader view of history, rather than when we're trying to move beyond you know old dead white guys, you move beyond it to old dead guys of all of all of all races or right. old dead people, including women of all of all races. Um, that's what I would like to see. Um, but in the meantime, we have Thucydides, and Thucydides is delightful in um, its ability to explain things and uh something that I wanted to bring up now this is one of my favorite um examples for all of historical conversation, uh which is the Athenian expedition to sicily um what's this is an example of where history both can be timeless and it can provide you with wonderful uh parallels, but it also shows the limits of those parallels because I first read Thucydides in two thousand six I think it was the second week of two thousand six. Uh, When we were in the middle of the Iraq War, and uh, I get to the expedition to Sicily, and it just sets off all of these historical parallel alarm bells in my head, because it's a situation where the war between Athens and Sparta is at a lull. They're not currently fighting each other, um, much as we had gone into Afghanistan, and we'd hit a lull at the point when we started to go into Iraq, but we hadn't finished it, Um, and then suddenly... These exiles from Sicily show up in Athens, and they say, hey, we're ruled by this evil tyrant, and if you come in and take this tyrant out, the people will greet you as liberators, and there will be all these wonderful natural resources for you, and all of these great things, and Athens has this discussion about whether it's going to go in, and they decide, well, we're going to put together this gigantic fleet, and it's going to be so big, it'll, it'll shock and awe people, But really all it ends up doing is scaring off their allies because it makes the allies think that they're interested in more than just liberation, more than what they say they're doing. So Athens ends up sort of going it alone, um, and then they get into this giant quagmire when they are not greeted as liberators. And so they end up doing this gigantic surge of forces that is recommended. And so, so far, so much like the Iraq War, the difference being that the Athenian surge was an absolute disaster in which all the people involved were lost. Whereas the American surge was uh, a pretty big success compared – certainly compared to what people thought was going to happen. Um, and that's sort of your, your limit to historical uh, comparisons, which is that it looks so much like the Iraq war up to that point. And if you're reading Thucydides, you could say, hey, let's not do this surge. This is just like what Athens did in Sicily, but it was a disaster there, except doing the surge was a good idea um, in America. Um, But it was a good idea for very specific reasons. Um, I don't remember, David, if you were at the same talk I was. um, Through some of our people that we studied grand strategy with and um, read Thucydides with, um, there were some talks at Yale that involved some uh, thinkers who were explaining the idea of the surge in Iraq uh, before it was actually getting mooted on a large-scale public basis. And I just remember being there at this lecture and seeing this map with all of the attacks that were going on and showing how they were becoming concentrated in a couple of specific areas and explaining why a surge of forces into those specific areas might make sense. And so I found myself in the bizarre position that I had opposed the initial invasion of Iraq, but I was in favor of the surge taking place, which seems to have been the opposite of what almost everybody else in America did. Just because I'd seen this lecture and I thought, well, that makes sense on its own terms. You can look at these other historical things that aren't so good for it, but in this specific instance, it does seem to make sense.
1: Yeah, well, I think um, this is a good moment uh, to sort of prove our bona fides um, for being the type of people we say we are, that I was in exactly the same position as you, that I thought the original articulation of the, um, you know, uh, of the grounds for invasion were was just completely meritless that there was no good reason uh, to support the, the invasion at the time that it was declared or decided on for the reasons that were given. Um, it was totally transparent to me. There was a terrible idea. And um, part of that was just part of that was just like the environment that I was in. Where you know I was like in high school, and it wasn 't a super right wing uh context, but you know I was starting to become an adult and able to think clearly about those types of things. It just seemed like a terrible idea. I did not revise my opinion on that at any point uh through college. however, in college, I became sickened by the uh perspective of the seemingly universal perspective of you know, uh, I don't know. Ninety percent of the people we were with yeah. at Yale, that um, this is just a sideshow, and it was a, it was a terrible idea. And you know, just get out of there as quickly as possible. As soon as we cut our losses, you know that'll be better than waiting for one more day of more failure. And it was getting, it, you know, getting it was getting to the wrong position for the wrong reason. You know, this idea that's like. Oh, we are just an imperial power who is oppressing, you know, we're oppressing these poor people and Iraqis are brown, African-Americans are black. It's the same white supremacy, you know, sort of uh, unfolding on both sides. And that was so, I'm sort of, I'm shortchanging that perspective um, a little bit and not rendering it charitably, although I don't think it really deserves to be rendered terribly charitably. (laughs) Um, But then, like you, when it came time for the surge, it's like, okay, what is actually going on? You know, what are the people with access to information now in 2006, 2007, actually saying? And they made a logical case that where there was violence and disorder, if you had more American troops uh, to, in a sense, like put their bodies between um, the provocateurs who were, you know, going and blowing up, Shia shrines and killing Shias to get Shias to then go blow up Sunni shrines and kill Sunnis, you know, put American bodies between those people uh, in alliance with members of the population who would then have the um, confidence that they could step up side by side with American troops to end the violence in that moment. You know, it made sense. It was a plausible case, you know, for for a policy that could work. And that was certainly morally uh, nearly an obligation, you know, to the extent, again, that morality has anything to do with international relations. Um, You know, it was both a plausible case for something that could work to solve a problem uh, that we were dealing with. And it seemed like the moral thing to do. And it was shocking to me that um, so few of my peers seemed to come to that perspective.
0: Yeah, I agree. And one thing about us just for, for the listeners is. You know, we may be on the liberal end of the spectrum, but we are not pacifists. I mean, I am, yeah. I, I, in my mind, I want a fairly high bar before you go to war, but that bar exists and you can't clear it. And right. uh, some people are just pacifists in a way where they think that all war is part of some, it's all part of the same big military industrial complex thing where it's imperialism and it's doing whatever. And I just, I mean, I don't. I don't much care for that interpretation of things. I and again, I, I think that goes back a bit to people on the left who want to look too much at everything as part of some philosophical societal structure that you have, and you want to view it through those terms. This is in contrast with the Thucydides method, where you know there are these these larger contexts at work, but you really also want to look at the specific moments. I mean, in Thucydides, there is a possibility for the war not to happen because one of the Kings of Sparta is talking at It's talking against it. He says, let's not do this. This doesn't make sense. And, um, but you know, the, sometimes the coin flips one way and sometimes it flips the other way.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, and, we were yeah, so and, close and, to and not Trump having
0: Trump be president. Right.
1: That changes a lot. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this goes back to our sort of our discussion of probability and you know, the, the ability to understand, um, you know, not, not to get like wrapped up in counterfactuals uh, and sort of just think about impossible things, but to um, understand that there are these particular moments where unusually high impact events uh, can come about as a result of you know, very minimal uh, factors that could have gone the other way, you know, and then you mentioned this, the Spartan King speaking against the war. And then on the other side, you had this, you know, uh, very, it's just like a, a once in a lifetime, uh, charismatic popular leader who was, in favor of war for, you know, in favor of pushing the Athenian people into war, uh, with Pericles, who's sort of considered a a hero because he's such a, he was such a master at what he did, you know, but what he, what he did was tell the Athenians that, you know, empire was their birthright and not to be afraid to upset the apple cart. Um, and yeah, going so going back to what you were just saying and trying to tie it back to some of the critiques that we had of like the read, you know, the current read of um, Thucydides that allegedly is uh, prevalent in the White House, is that, so it's, it's, talk about like, where does war come from? And so in Greek society, uh, during the Persian Wars and then through the Peloponnesian War, you have just to speak at a pretty simplistic level for the purpose of uh, wrapping this up relatively quickly. Uh, <laughs> I know, it's so much fun. I love this discussion. Oh, it's great. Right, right. Um, you know, you've got like a militaristic slave society in Sparta where the entire economy is based on the labor of, you know, and indigenous people who have been uh, forced to work for the Spartans so they're producing uh, agricultural surplus for the Spartans, who are a warrior caste, basically, um, who you know raise their children to become warriors in order to maintain their dominance over these slaves. And um, by contrast, in Athens, you also have slaves, but you know, the economy is totally different. It's based more on trade and openness and... Um, uh, you know, access to distant ports and that sort of thing. And so slaves are an essential part of the economy, but it's it's a very different, to a very different degree. Um, and in fact, the extent to which, and this is a bit of a footnote, but just on the subject of slaves, the extent to which the Athenian uh, power was based on the Navy actually led the Athenians further down the path of democracy, where um, as they were running out of manpower, right. they turned the slaves into citizens And the slaves were happy to become and honored to become citizens to serve in the navies because the Athenians knew, like, we can't, you know, we can't win if we don't empower these people. And the people themselves, the slaves, were, uh, you know, believed enough in what Athens meant that they didn't say, ah, fuck you guys, we're, you know, we're leaving. Sorry. Uh, Our
0: first first real use for the explicit tag. Yeah.
1: Anyway, so you know, so there's this Marxist or Marxian view of like the economic structures are what would cause war, you know. But here, the economic structure, you have this oppressive slave society and this um, mercantile, also slave but less dominated by slavery society. And because the latter is rising, the former uh, basically decides on preemptive war to shut them down. And so there it's like, okay, where does the war come from? Maybe Marx, you know, maybe maybe you just say like, okay, don't prepare for war and war will not come. Well, it's like the society that was more open, that was more equal, more democratic, more um focused on different types of people coming together and sharing in a sort of universal idea you could say that they were being aggressive but basically like the dominant society the militaristic closed oppressive society forced war on them you know and even if this scenario isn't good go back to the pelpit to uh prior you know to the to the persian wars you have a straight up you know theocratic empire comes and at that point Athens isn't much of a power at all and they're just you know they're not prepared for war they just are doing their own thing trading and you know building slowly into the power that they would become but you know f- experimenting with democracy and then this power comes from across the sea and forces war on them you know and sometimes sometimes war is just inevitable because you can't guarantee that One of the other actors involved isn't going to decide that a recourse to force isn't their best bet for dominating the situation that they are in. So, you know, you have to prepare for war in order to secure the possibility of peace. And it seems like a paradox, but it's definitely true. Yeah. Um, But then uh, maybe I'll hand it over to you. But just this concept of like Sparta as a slave society and the fact that they were not the rising power. You know puts the puts the context of or puts the comments that Bannon type people uh, have been making about you know Sparta as Breitbart type stuff you know makes it like sound completely insane
0: yeah, and I agree that um love of Sparta is something that is hardly new. I mean you go back to the eighteenth century, there's a lot of people who are very fond of Sparta. they sort of view it as an almost idealized society because it's pure in what it's doing. Like there's, there's basically two roles in Sparta and they're pure in those roles. There's the slaves who are doing the agriculture and there's the warriors who do nothing but prepare for war. Whereas Athens is this democracy, it's messy, it's got all this stuff going on, it's got all these quarreling people involved, it's just not nearly as clean and pure as Sparta is. But if you're really ever faced with a choice, where would you rather live? This place where you have to spend your entire life fighting just so you can suppress your slaves... (laughs) <laughs> as a place that's open and allows ideas um, I mean for Americans there's one answer we're supposed to give and right. I think most people would give if their hearts were you know
1: truly we know there. we know where Jeff Session wants to live
0: yeah well um, but uh, yeah so the the issue with Sparta that you for using it any other comparison it is kind of a unique society even for Greece at the time even for the world is that um, you've got a, this is a society where um, you know, we talk about the military-industrial complex in America sometimes. Sparta has a sort of a military-agricultural complex, where, you know, the existence of the military is to justify the way that they do agriculture, and the way that they do agriculture justifies the military, and Sparta hated, actually hated going to war. Spartans hated losing soldiers, because the purpose of those soldiers wasn't to project power. It wasn't to protect them from an invasion. It was to put down slave rebellions, and I mean, when you from that perspective it's at that people just look at the military might that Sparta had, and they don't look at why it had that might and how it used that might and Sparta had to be reluctant using its 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 military might because it wasn't about external threats, and so if we want to talk about anything like Sparta today, you have to bear in mind that Sparta was about internal suppression, not external defense
1: right, and that's that's what makes the you know the three hundred movie that's one of the like insane you know, uh, sort of uh, m- m- just the, the fact that they overlook that aspect of Sparta. Right. They don't even um, mention that that's why they're warriors. They don't even, they don't even mention it. Um, it just makes it insane for the movie. Although I agree with you that the movie in certain ways was like very accurate to Herodotus. Um, and yeah. that's, that's probably a, uh, let's let, let Accurate that to Herodotus
0: <laughs> is damning with so. faint praise, but you know,
1: well, you know, but just the like I mean, you know, one of the main points being this this description of the Greeks as like manly, vigorous, authoritative free people versus the Spar- the uh excuse me, versus the Persians who were, you know, effeminate, um corrupted by leisure. Like that's something that is present in the text. And so to the extent that 300 is like a movie version of Herodotus. Um, they actually were faithful to the text in conveying that um, concept. It's just that the concept is like a chauvinistic and right. you know xenophobic one. That and basically... it's all
0: the stranger when uh, – so spoiler alert for the end of the Peloponnesian War, which does not really um, – Thucydides, of course, doesn't finish it. Um, so to provide some context for this, this whole thing starts because you've got these leagues to defend against Persia, and then Sparta ends up allying with Persia. And right. then eventually, Sparta defeats Athens. But then, within a couple decades, Athens is basically right back to where it was before the war started, um, and back to being dominant. And Sparta has been massively depleted by all of this. And then Thebes comes in and conquers everybody. And then right. Alexander the Great of Macedon comes in and conquers Thebes. And then Alexander dies, and his you know, and his his generals afterward just quarrel, and everything breaks apart. And then the Romans right. come in. So
1: right.
0: you know, it, it's. This is not part of the text itself because you have to go out a bit, but there is this extent to which it's a momentous war, and the thing's momentous for the people involved. But in the long term, this great war doesn't affect all that much right. in terms of, i mean it affects the lives of the people who are there, but it and in their their couple of decades, but the greater historical power structure that you're going to see it fluctuates there's no one there's no one simple defeat by Sparta over Athens that is the end of all of this,
1: right. And that, I mean, that that brings up a much bigger discussion about the nature of history and, you know, the nature of studying history, what you get from it, periodization, you know, what what the valuable uh, scope of uh, history for trying to answer any particular historical questions. Yeah, you know, that's a that's a big topic. But um, yeah, you know, we're sort of reaching the end of this discussion now, and we don't want to get into that, but. Yeah. Um, but it is a it is a good one to, yeah. to have in mind. And we
0: didn't even really get into fear, honor, and interest as a concept here. It's not that specific to Thucydides. The phrase kind of comes from there. And to some extent, that phrase is self-explanatory and then gets applied in various circumstances. Fear is your preemptive thinking of, well, it's, it's what the Iraq War was sold on, which is if we don't attack them, we're going to get hit. That's fear of them doing something. Um, and... I mean, we, we could go on and on about our thoughts for what was going on with the Iraq war. I mean, I'll add to what you said earlier that, you know, as a young person, I didn't fully understand everything that was going on. And I certainly look back on the take that I had in 2003, and I believe that I was wrong in certain relevant respects. But I think I was right in the most important respects that made it a bad idea. But, you know, I, I – Certainly now do not take the view that Bush intentionally lied us into war. This this is a whole discussion we had in the pilot episode for this that some may someday see the light of air, uh, the light of day. But um, anyway, yeah. um, so that's one concept, one place where fear comes in. Interest is you know they have something and I want it. We're going to take it because we can. We think we can get it at a low enough price that it's worth it. <laughs> and that is you know um, often uh, that doesn't really work out as much as people want a lot of the time because you say oh they have something i want and i'm going to take it because it's worth it um well when wars turn out to be bogged down and take up a lot then you've really sort of self-defeated that um but that kind of gets us into Clausewitz and his talk about politics as uh, war is politics by other means which it's going to have to be the subject of its own podcast um but i do want to quickly say right now Clausewitz is sort of the other great Text that military international relations thinkers talk about less so with the international relations people, but more so a lot of military people, and that's also a text that ends up being unfinished um, by its author who who dies. Um, but and it's also one where misreading it can be incredibly dangerous, and a lot of World War One can be traced to certain misreadings of, of Clausewitz, which they all studied very carefully. But when well,
1: he said a very common yeah. misreading, yeah. when
0: when when he said war is politics by other means, a lot of people take that. They take that to almost be flippant about war, but that's not what he means. He actually means the opposite of that. What he actually means is that you start a war for a political purpose, which is your interest. Why are we going to war? That's the political purpose. And then everything you do in that war has to further that political interest. That's what he's saying. But people want to read that as, oh, a war is just another form of politics, which is the exact opposite of what he's trying to say. But anyway, so that's your fear and your interest, which, by the way, I mean, overlap to a certain extent. You could say that the Iraq War – some people – I think inaccurately claim that the Iraq war was an interest war. We just wanted to take their oil in the end. We, you know, who would argue that we ended up profiting from the Iraq war. I've heard some people say that, and I'm just sort of shake my head, but what are you talking about? That you think the U S government came out ahead on that Um, in terms of money um, to say nothing of the lives, which are the more important part, but um, so you could, so um, you could also say you have an interest in security. Maybe you're not afraid of of an immediate attack, but your overall security interest. So fear and interest, they blend together. Honor is an interesting concept and one that gets a little overlooked in these, and I think when we were talking about um, wars you can't get out of, that's where honor really comes up because you think that um, your honor is stained if you leave Vietnam and lose, and a lot of the people who keep saying we should have stayed in Vietnam, they seem to have this attitude that our national honor could have been salvaged by sticking it out, and I mean that just strikes me as incredibly self-destructive, and I also think, I mean, honor is a difficult word.
1: It's a difficult word, and I think, um, you know, going back to what I said at the very beginning about how uh, Thucydides is is so spare in his writing style that he avoids falling into certain like, rhetorical traps that would date the work, and the fact that he avoids those traps makes it more universal. Um, I think honor is perhaps one of the ones where he kind of does fall into a trap, like with that particular word, because it's a particular word with particular value for classical Greece right and you know the way like the type of behavior set that he was referring to in talking about honor is something that you know anyone of his generation or like a couple centuries before and you know and after would understand exactly and perfectly what he meant but it's sort of distant to us yeah Um, you know particularly after World War one that kind of discredited the concept of you know men where like in order to be a man you had to willingly accept you know to go and fight was your was your greatest uh duty and and honor uh to be willing to fight and die is basically what characterized honor but i think to some extent we can ref we can maybe salvage um that triad by saying by kind of interpreting honor to be like personality like the types of personality is not exactly the right word i'm i'm doing this off the fly now, but like Obama, for example, like, you know, his approach, like his framing, his character, the way that he framed and approached various um, scenarios, various episodes in his tenure as uh, president, you know, there is a, there is a defining feature to him. And... Whatever that is, it's different. You know, whatever we define that as, like that is ma- that is different from Bush, right? Right. Both are the American president. Uh, both are, you know, the head of this massive uh, military and diplomatic power covering a huge portion of the globe. Structurally speaking, that should make them very similar. But their individual characters do matter, and I think that's maybe a way that we can um, salvage right. the. concept of honor and and
0: our when we commonly talk about honor as a cause of of, uh, it's just an honor as a term in our modern american usage of honor there's two different we're basically talking about two different concepts of honor one of which i would say is a very positive characteristic and the other i would say is a very destructive characteristic um which is that the positive version of honor is when you talk about personal honor in the sense of um i believe this is right and this is wrong and this is something that is counter to my interests this is something that I don't want to do, but I'm going to do it because I'm an honorable man. I'm a man of my word. You can, relust, you, can try me, you can rely on me. You can trust me. You know, I'm a good person. That kind of personal honor, I think, is very good. And then there's what I view as the bad form of honor, which is the prestige form of honor, the form where instead of being interested in what you personally do, you're interested in what other people think about you. Um, that's the kind – I mean that's – this is just that – that distinction is kind of Donald Trump to a T. He has none <laughs> yeah. of the personal honor and all of the prestige honor as things that he cares about. He thinks that – I mean you look at justification for conflict. He thinks that his honor is attacked every time he's criticized, and he thinks that he has to go on the offensive as soon as his honor is criticized. And um, the, one of the uh, historians who's big on Thucydides that David and I both took a class with uh, is Don Kagan at Yale – um, there are a lot of names we could drop in this discussion, but no one listening would be able to pick them up anyway. And, um, yeah, uh, but, uh, but Don Kagan is, uh, he's got some great writings on all of this, but he talks about honor as the under, under part of the fear, honor and interest thing, where we have to understand that honor, particularly in the form of prestige is something that really drives a lot of conflicts and keeps them going. This sense that, you know, this is our national prestige is going to drop, if we don't see this war through to the end, even if it doesn't make sense to continue the war, um, yeah. so uh, I think there's obviously so much more we could cover, but we're getting to the end of time. Anything else you want to add, David?
1: Um, no, I think I got most of it out. And again, let's try to be try to be choppy with this one.
0: Oh man, we're so much. We're about to be. This is going to be our shortest one yet because it is time for my sign off. And I've just got a quick one for you today. I want to talk about platelet donations. Um, this is something that I've been doing for several years at the Red Cross, uh, here in DC. Um, it's a procedure I didn't even know about until, um, they came to me and asked me if I would do it because I was a regular normal blood donor. Um, and, um, they just asked me if I could do platelets because they always need more. And the reason they always need more is that the shelf life on these is about four or five days, apparently. So they constantly need more platelets. And the way that platelet donation works is it's similar to giving normal blood. Um, but instead of taking all of your blood, they take, they take it and then they spin it around in this machine to get the platelets out. And then they put your blood, the rest of your blood back in you. This allows you to donate every two weeks. Um, well, you could theoretically do it every week, but there's a 26 time per year cap. So it's basically every two weeks. Um, it takes a lot longer than giving normal blood, which takes, you know, 15 minutes or so. This takes two hours, two hours, 10 minutes ish, depending on how much they're getting out. Um, it feels very weird because they're, when, it, when, they, when they put stuff back in you, it, it feels very weird. Uh, it can cause a little <laughs> bit of an acid buildup and it makes the first bite of food you take after you do it feel really weird. But um, but I want to recommend that you, you think about this because I always hear people say, they say, used to say in ads when I was little that um, the number one reason people don't give blood is that they say they haven't been asked. And um, with platelet donation, I had never even heard of it until they came to me and asked. So... Um, I think this is something that a lot of you should look into if you've got a blood type that's good for it, if you've got you know high iron levels and high platelet counts. Uh, I've been doing this for several years now. Um, it takes a lot of time, but I view that as just making me hardcore, which I view in a personal honor sense as being a great thing. Uh, I mean, David and I, we used to go to the blood donations at Yale, and I remember we even got a little competitive about who could give more blood faster. Um, <laughs> and uh, with platelets, I sort of compete over how rarely do they have to come and uh, adjust the machine because I wasn't squeezing the right way um, but uh, you know it's it's a very sort of hardcore thing to do and I think it's it's really useful and the Red Cross has an app that tracks how many lives you've sh- saved with the number of, of units you've donated and um, I mean that number can't be exactly accurate but if that number is one percent of what it says then you know all of those all of those hours i've spent doing this is worth it. They give you a little portable DVD player and headphones so you can watch movies. They have TV shows on DVD. They have like Firefly was there as a season a series you can just watch through. I really really think it would be great if, you know, people can go out there and give this a try. It might not be for everybody, but if it is for you, um, you know, my life tracker says that i've saved somewhere around 492 lives with all my donations. Um, again, if it's 1% of that, then it was worth it. And I'm extremely happy. So I want to leave you all with that thought as something to consider. Um, Have a great week, everybody.